we're here with his constant, never-changing word. And the Spirit is going to work in our hearts today as we go to his word for the sermon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we enter into that. Father, we're here in your presence. Your spirit is indwelling those who believe in you. And it is just me here speaking to my brothers and sisters in Christ and perhaps some that don't know you. And there are those who are going through various trials and temptations, suffering, circumstances of life that are difficult. It's mixed with joy and sorrow. And we need a word from you, Lord. And so use me as your vessel, as a shepherd, to deliver your message. And by your spirit, work in the heart of each individual to be strengthened, to persevere, to grow in their love for you and their, their longing for a future heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Wretched man, I am. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter 7, verse 24 of the book of Romans. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? That's the cry of a man who is well acquainted with suffering, isn't it? In Paul's own testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he has a list of his sufferings. He talks about being beaten and shipwrecked, being adrift at sea and dangers from rivers and robbers, the Jews and the Gentiles, dangers in the city and in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brethren, these false teachers that came in, in toil and hardship. Through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without clothing, in cold and exposure. You too are acquainted with grief and sorrow, aren't you? Some of you have had uh, open heart surgery recently. And you're just wondering, am I going to heal? How strong will I be in the future, some of you have had injuries, maybe hip replacement or knee replacement, and you're going through that therapy, and you're just wondering, how strong will I be, and how long will this pain endure? Perhaps you're the caregiver for someone, uh, an aging parent with dementia, or maybe they're becoming more crippled in needing to be on crutches or needing to be in a wheelchair and you're aging and you're a caregiver and you're wondering, well, who's going to take care of me? Perhaps you're headed towards retirement and you're, you're wondering, do I have enough saved? Is there any certainty with my future? Some of you are going through marriage trials. Perhaps you're in counseling or you need to be. But you don't see a lot of hope that things are going to really change. Maybe you have fractured relationships. Some are divorced. 
Some seem to be headed that way. Some have been in dating relationships and they break up. We, we worry about our children, don't we? Some have been in terrible accidents and others have been treated wickedly. And we wonder as parents, could I have done anything to stop this or to keep it from happening? And now that we're in the aftermath, what do I do? Am I sufficient for these things? And the answer we know is no. We need him, don't we? There are many ways we suffer and many degrees of suffering. And all of these are examples of mental and physical and emotional suffering that we go through. But it's interesting that Paul's cry, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death, is not about the physical, emotional suffering. It's about the spiritual suffering. You see, in chapter 7, he's been talking about the struggle over sin. He describes it this way, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. How about that suffering? Can you relate to that, the struggle with sin daily? The fact that all of this emotional Suffering, this mental suffering, this physical suffering is in a context of living in a sin-cursed world with fallen bodies and fallen souls, fallen minds, fallen feelings. And we, we suffer because of that sin. And, and also people are drawn into our suffering with us, don't we? We have them brought in because we sin against them and they sin against us. But that's not what I want you to dwell on today. I don't want you to look back and see all the failure. I want you to look forward to the future and the glorification of your bodies. There's someone who cares about you in your suffering and there's someone who is going through it with you. And that is God, our triune God, the Father, the Son... And the Holy Spirit. Glorification is coming when there will be no more suffering. Hallelujah. Sin will be eradicated. This world will be pristine and you will be pure. The first thing Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 27 which is going to be our text is just that. He says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, that's what we've been describing mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. They're, they may be really bad, but therefore the present time and they're not worth even comparing. As bad as they are, as good as our glorification is going to be, it's not even a comparison. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, Paul says the same thing essentially. 
He says, this slight momentary affliction. That's an incredible understatement, isn't it? <laughs> slight momentary. Seems great in a long time. But this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. A weight of glory beyond all comparison. Wow. When that time comes, we're not going to be looking back. We're not going to be looking back and saying, whoa, boy, I suffered. We're not going to be pulling over some friend and saying, but don't you remember how bad it was down there? No, we're going to be freed from all of that. We're going to be looking at the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be with the angels. We're going to be with the saints. We're going to be worshiping and singing and learning and growing, I believe, in the greater knowledge of the Lord. So while we're on this journey together now, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged that you're not alone. In fact, there are three entities. Three entities that are groaning together with you for your sanctification and your glorification. They're groaning for your glorification. And we're going to see these in Romans 8 verses 19 through 27. And the first one that you see is that all creation is groaning for your glorification. Do you know you have that working for you? All creation? Look at verses 19 through 22 and notice the main theme of creation. It's used four times in this text. It says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Creation here refers to the natural world. It excludes people for this moment. We get to that later, but it includes the Atlantic Ocean and the beach and the land in Florida and the sinkholes. It includes the mosquito, yes, and the alligator. Paul speaks of creation, though, as if it is a human with human characteristics, all of it together. That's what we call personification. And creation has a problem. Two problems, in fact, in verse 20 and verse 21, it says on the one hand it is subjected to Futility, And on the other hand, it is in slavery to corruption. Futility speaks of things that are useless, meaningless. 
There's a frustration there in creation because it is not what it was intended to be. I mean, I love the beach. I love the beauty of the sky. I love the clouds. Uh, I love mountains and snow and, and beautiful parts of creation. But this is nothing compared to what it was supposed to be created. Boy, if you stood there during the days of creation and saw God speak it all into existence, I'm sure it would have been awesome. It would have been beautiful, magnificent, immaculate. But instead, due to the curse of sin, it's decaying. The word that's translated corruption here in this context refers to the organic material creation decaying. You see, instead of being that glorious, beautiful creation, it's experiencing environmental degradation. Now, I don't don't care what your politics is about environmental change and all that, but it is a fact that it's degrading. This environment is deteriorating. You have resources that are depleted. We experience pollution of our water, our air, and our soil. I remember smog alerts in L.A. Anybody remember smog alerts in L.A.? Maybe you haven't been there, but... You ever seen a brownout in the air? You had to go and get your car smog checked all the time and make sure there are all these smog devices that are working properly. And, and they really did bring the pollution down. There's a website you can go to where you can check the air quality on any day all over the world. Some of them, some of the cities, I don't know what all the air quality uh, numbers mean, but there's some in Mexico that are up to like 600 poor air quality. That's extreme. Around the L.A. area, some places in California, it's around 160. Here in Florida, it's usually down in the 35s. You have good air quality in Florida. Be thankful. But our world has ecosystems that are being destroyed. We have various wildlife that go out of existence. They're just extinct. Every year, there are extinct animals. This this year, this past year, we lost the splendid poisonous frog and the northern white rhino. Two of my favorite creatures. But how did creation become so futile and corrupt? Verse 20 says it was subjected to futility by him who subjected it. That's God. God is the him. You see, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you see him speaking the world into existence in this powerful voice all the way through chapter 1. And then you get to the very end and God looks at all that he created and he says, and it was very good. He created mankind. And the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden to to tend it and to live in fellowship with him. And, and they 
rebelled against God and they took God's commandment and basically just shook their fist at him and he had given them one command not to eat of the tree that's in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They ate. They were tempted by Satan, the serpent, and they ate. They hid from God. They had the fellowship broken. But then in chapter 3, when he gives, God gives a curse upon the serpent, upon the man, upon the woman, and then upon the man. And part of that curse was that he cursed the ground. And where before it didn't, now it produced thistles, weeds. Man would have to work hard to supply for his family. This was the beginning of the devolution of our world. Evolution is hilarious. We're in a state of devolution. All of this is described in verses 19 and 20. We see four phrases that tell us that the whole creation is anxiously longing. It's waiting eagerly. It's groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth. The picture there is, is one of consternation. All of creation is just suffering and groaning and, and waiting. And, and it has this unfulfilled expectation. You can think of earthquakes, perhaps. Just think about how that is. Just the shifting of the plates and the creation of just utter terror. I remember I was in the Northridge quake in 1994 in Southern California the L.A. area, and it hit at 4.01 a.m., a 6.7 earthquake, and it lasted for 20 seconds. Imagine 20 seconds of rolling and shaking and being tossed around and everything in your, your home, just the bookshelves falling over and Plaster falling, and some people's homes totally collapsed. There were freeways that were broken, the bridges, and then buildings that collapsed, apartment complexes, that sort of thing. 72 people died that day. 9,000 were injured. And many, many more would have been injured and killed if it had been later in the morning, if it had been a few hours later when people were flooding the freeways to get to work. Every year in California, you hear about these horrendous fires. There were people that were killed just yesterday, I believe, in a fire in Colorado. We sit in Hurricane Alley, don't we? And every year there are hurricanes that come, and they've been hitting the Louisiana region they devastated the Bahamas recently. Think about that tornado in Kentucky just uh, December 15th. And 70 people died in that one tornado. There was a, a candle factory that was just collapsed. 
and there are volcanoes, and there are floods, and plagues of livestock, and there's all that bacteria and viruses and things like that that we just don't even see and can't understand. These are all the groanings of creation. But what is creation waiting for? Well, certainly it's awaiting to be set free from its slavery to corruption. That's what verse 21 says. It, it, in, it anticipates a new creation. Scripture makes very clear that this isn't the final state. <laughs> Something new is coming. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. That'll be a fire. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's why people say a lot of times, it's all going to burn. Don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moss and rust and fire will consume it. But lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, right? Isaiah 65, 17 says, this is God speaking. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And think about the state of things, the, the peace that's predicted. In Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together... And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their, their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Every mother's nightmare, right? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Revelation chapter 21 points to that. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any sea. And it describes that God is going to be tabernacling. He's going to be dwelling with men upon the earth and in the heavens and it says this beautiful, encouraging thing in verse 4. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. Isn't that something to look forward to? Now, as amazing and wonderful as the promise of a new creation is, that's not ultimately the most important thing that creation is longing for. I mean, yes, creation is going to be new. It's going to be free from the subjection to suffering 
and slavery and corruption. It's going to be free. But ultimately, what creation is longing for and awaiting eagerly, it says, the revealing of the sons of God. In verse 19. What, what is holding back all of that burning up of the earth and the heavens and the new creation of a new earth and a new heavens is for you to be glorified. Not just you, but all of the elect of all ages, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined before the foundation of the earth, and he called them at some moment in your particular life, you were effectually called. And when he called you, he also justified you through faith in Jesus Christ. He declared you to be absolutely righteous before him, covered with the righteousness of Christ, that blameless, spotless lamb who shed his precious blood. And you're declared to be just as perfect, glorious, righteous as he is. But he's not finished at that point. He's going to sanctify you and then one day you'll be glorified. You'll be, you will, your position in Christ will be practical. That's what Paul discusses in those famous verses in Romans 8 verse 28 through 30. We just, I just walked you through that. You can read it sometime. But the suffering that we go through is part of that glorifying process. In verse 28 it says, probably the most famous verse in this passage, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things. That's your suffering in all the different ways we described it today. All of creation's suffering. All of this angst. All of this being dissatisfied with what we hope things to be. Or wish they were. All of it has a purpose. And God is causing all of it to work together for good. And the ultimate good in the context is that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what God's up to. That's his main project. His two great works are creation and redemption. He's redeeming a people for his own possession. That's what God is about. He wants you. And he wants to dwell among you. And so he's going to make you holy like he is holy so that can be possible. Well, how does creation wait for this? Look at verse 20. It is in hope. That waiting is described as the pains of childbirth. The pains of childbirth are hopeful, aren't they? 
I mean, men, we don't want to go through it, you know, right? If you've seen your wife going through labor and giving birth to a child, you're thankful for her, right? But there is pain, and, and we should really value motherhood. We should value our wives and our mothers who gave birth to us, that they were willing to go through the pain that it took to bring us into this world. But that kind of pain has hope attached, doesn't it? There's the hope that there's going to be this beautiful, perfect in our minds, baby boy or girl. And in our family, we say we like our babies pre-rolled. We like them to be chubby and have those little chunks on their arms. So squishy. But the pains of childbirth give us this idea that something, there's an anticipation, there's an unfulfilled expectation, there's a groaning that looks forward to what is hoped for. That's what creation is waiting for and longing for. For the children of God to appear glorified. And it's as good as done from God's perspective in Romans 8, verse 30, it says, Those whom he predestined, past tense, and called, past tense. Those whom he called, he also justified, past tense. And those whom he justified, past tense, he also glorified, past tense. It is as good as done in the mind of God because he is timeless, right? Well, creation isn't the only entity that is groaning for your glorification. You yourself are also groaning for your glorification, aren't you? Look at verse 23. And not only this, but we also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We have two problems. We've talked about them already. We have a physical problem and we have a spiritual problem. First, we groan eagerly waiting for the redemption of our bodies, our physical bodies. The older you get, the more you groan. <laughs> I like that commercial. You see that commercial where the guy's trying to keep people from becoming their parents? And when they sit down, they, uh, they get up. Uh. There's groaning associated with getting older or having injuries and that sort of thing. We just groan because of our bodies. We're part of creation. And we have the fact that death entered when sin entered the world as well. So... From the moment you are born, you begin to die. We experience pain and suffering and frustration. We want to get out of the wheelchair. We want to get off of the crushes, crutches. We want our joints to work without painkillers, cortisone shots, or replacements, don't we? 
We want to grow our limbs back if we've lost them. We want to not have to wear the hearing aids that I have in my ears right now. They're micro. You can't see them. I don't want to wear glasses, but then I wouldn't see your lovely faces. And everybody's going to die unless you live until Jesus comes back. But that's the hope, right? That he is going to return. But the physical weakness that we experience is not our biggest problem. It's the spiritual weakness. That's what caused Paul to break out with those words, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death. In chapter 7, verse 15, his testimony is true of us as well. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I want to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Do you ever do that? You know what you should be doing, but you do the very thing you hate. Verse 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. I struggle with sin. Not one of you is perfect. It's a daily reality. Who do you think of the first thing when you get out of bed in the morning? Yourself. You have some thought. It may not be a sinful thought, but we're just self-oriented. We struggle with various sins that are recurring. And people get caught up in it as well. So what are we waiting for? Paul says we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. According to this chapter, we've already seen, if you read through the chapter, that we are God's children, aren't we? Verse 14 says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Verses 16 and 17, he calls us the children of God and heirs with Christ. But verse 23 says that we eagerly await our adoption as sons. So how can that be? How can we be the children of God, be heirs with Christ, and yet we're awaiting the adoption as sons? Well, imagine that you were a child overseas that was being adopted by a family in America. And you haven't actually seen them. Maybe it's a country that doesn't allow that. But you have an agent, an adoption agent, that is walking through the process, and you have the certificate of adoption. Everything's been signed. There's a seal put on the document and it is guaranteed 
There's a sense in which you have already been adopted. And they give you pictures of the family that you have that you're going to go live with. But these are just representations. This is in hope. This is looking forward. And then one day you're brought to live with that family and you're embraced in their arms and it's a whole new life. The Holy Spirit is our seal. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we are going to see Christ, that we are going to experience living with the triune God in heaven and on the new earth. So what are we supposed to do while we wait? Verses 24 and 25 are what we want to look at for that. In verse 25, it says that we're supposed to persevere. Near the end, it says, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. That's what we're doing now. While you're suffering, while you're eagerly expecting and anticipating and groaning, you persevere. And the Spirit enables you to persevere. He empowers you. He's given you a new nature. He works through His Word into your life as you read it and as you live out your responsibility to obey the Word of God. But while we persevere, there's hope. We, we persevere in hope. In verse 24, it says, five times in verses 24 and 25, you have the word hope. That's the emphasis here. He says, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that seen, is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. It's in hope you've been saved. You see, when you heard the promises of Christ, that he said, whosoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life, you believed, you recognized that you were a sinner who needed a Savior. The word promised, through the preaching of the word perhaps, that if you look to Jesus, if you trust in him and his sacrifice on your behalf, that you will have eternal life, which is not just a quantity of life forever, but it also is a quality of life. Jesus says it is a relationship with the Father and the Son. You have hope that that's true, don't you? And it's a sure foundation because God has promised in hope, we, we hope with spiritual eyes. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen all this, all the promises come to completion. But we believe they're true and we eagerly wait for that. So in the process of your waiting in hope and your perseverance, God is doing the sanctification in your life. And the process is kind of summed up in... Uh, Verses 3, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, it says, 
And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Exult in the tribulations? Well, why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Okay, we're supposed to persevere. And perseverance, what does it bring? Proven character. If you have hope and you know what you're supposed to be doing, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and you're looking to Christ to grow, depending upon the Spirit, you're going to see your character change. You're going to be different. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I love Paul's benediction at the end of chapter 15, verse 13. It says, Now may the God of hope, he's the God of hope. That's, that's great, isn't it? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope wants you to abound in hope by the Holy Spirit. So we've seen then, right? The whole creation groans for your glorification. You yourselves groan for your glorification. But also, the Holy Spirit is groaning for your glorification. We see this in verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We have two problems here. We're weak, and we don't know how to pray like we should. Look at verse 26 again. It says, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. We are weak physically and spiritually, as we've discovered. But we don't even know, like physically, what's going on in our bodies. Now, you look at me and you think, he looks like a pretty healthy individual but in order to see what's really going on in me you need some EEGs and some EKGs and some x-rays and you need some uh, maybe MRIs some LMNOPs you might need to do exploratory surgery I love that one company that advertises minimally invasive spinal surgery. Nothing about that sounds good to me. But we don't know really what all is going on spiritually either. We don't even really know ourselves. We don't know what the deep heart work needs to be that would be necessary for our final glorification and for our continued sanctification now. I found a website that lists all the sins that are listed in the New Testament. And there's 84 sins listed there. 
That means there's 84 sins that you and I are capable of committing. Now you look at the list, and I'll just list a few for you. Adultery, anger, anxiety, arrogance, boasting, complaining, coveting, lying, envy, drunkenness, lust, hatred, homosexuality, hypocrisy, gossip, slander, murder, stealing, and unforgiveness, and the list goes on. And you say, well, I don't struggle with that particular sin. Well, let me tell you two things. One, you have enough to worry about already. You don't need to worry about the ones you're not struggling with. And don't be proud. Because that's the second thing I want to say to you. Is that you don't know what circumstances might come into your life that will tempt you to fall to that particular sin that you don't even know about yet. But it can happen. But that's the beauty of this. We don't know what it is going to take for us to be fully sanctified and glorified, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, but there is someone who knows what it's going to do, take, and he's going to do it. He knows what to pray about. You see, verses in this section show us a process that's going to go on in our lives in verses 26 and 27. First of all, we see that God searches our hearts. He has his searchlight shining into the darkness of our souls. We see this in verse 27. He searches the heart. He knows exactly what needs to change in that heart as he looks at it. He says, okay, we've got to trim off some of that. We need to remove that. We need to, well, let's just give them a new heart. That's what's going to eventually happen is a perfect new heart. It reminds me, though, of Psalm 139 in verses 23 and 24 where David prays to God and he says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a great prayer. It shows that you're being dependent Upon God, you know that you don't even know your own heart because Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it is what he says. So we need, to, we need God to search our hearts and for him to know what needs to change for us to be like Christ. And the Spirit also knows what needs to take place. And the Spirit knows how to take care of what needs to take place. And the Father and the Spirit are in sync on these matters. Look at what the verse says. It says, he who searches the heart, that's the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So he knows what the Spirit's thinking about that needs to change. You know, you have the Father and the Son. You can imagine this, this conversation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Father is saying, yeah, I know what you're thinking, Spirit. This is what, you know, I see it too. I'm searching the heart. I know what needs to change in this person's life for them to be like Christ. And uh, that's what the Spirit is doing. It says, that is the will of God, your sanctification. 
Isn't that encouraging, though? That the Father knows exactly what is going to have to take place for us to be like Jesus Christ. And he has designed every day before one of them came to be. And he knows what's necessary day after day after day after day for you to change. He knows what circumstances it's going to take. And so don't go through life just kind of helter-skelter thinking, oh man, this happened today and I got a bum leg today and this broken relationship and we don't have any money now. Just throw up our hands. Despair, worry, be anxious. No, God's got a plan. And that's what he's doing. He's making you more like Jesus Christ. Now you might even be more encouraged to know that the son is involved in this as well. In verse 20, 34 at the end of uh, the chapter it says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Fascinating thing here is that you have the whole triune God interceding for you. And the Spirit is accomplishing this sanctification. And it says that He too, just like creation and just like us, is groaning. You see that word there? The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Spirit's groaning. Now it's important for us to understand this. Let's dissuade ourselves of any of these false views... The Spirit's groaning doesn't mean speaking in tongues. The Spirit's groaning doesn't mean you know, some type of private prayer language. It doesn't mean that He's getting us to do anything. It says the Spirit is groaning. And it doesn't mean that the Spirit doesn't use words when He intercedes for us. If you look at verse 26, it says the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. And to intercede for somebody means that you plead and on behalf of somebody else, you make petitions and requests. And in verse 27, it says, God knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Well, the mind of the Spirit about these things would be thoughts that could be expressed in words. And it says, He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, you can write down what the will of God is. Again, it's words. But what does it mean that He intercedes... With groanings too deep for words. It means that while he is interceding for us with words, he accompanies this with groaning. And we've seen in the context in creation and us groaning that his creation's groaning and our groaning and his groaning are the same. It's this feeling of unfulfilled expectations. The Holy Spirit knows the work that needs to be done for us to be like Jesus Christ. And that's why Peter in 1 Peter 1-2 calls this the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You and I, my friend, are going to take a lot of work. But it is He who works in you, Paul says, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Now, I want you to leave here today encouraged. Yes, it's true that we're living in a world that's winding down. It's true that 
we're going to suffer physically. It's true that we're going to be put to death, sin, the rest of our lives. But it is equally true that you are a child of a father who loves you and is for you. And he's going to accomplish what he has determined that he will do in your life. It's equally true that you have the Holy Spirit who groans with you. He knows what you're feeling. He knows the angst and the, the trial, the turmoil and the um, suffering that you're going through. And he is going to make sure that you're complete when Jesus returns or you go to see him. And it's equally true that one day your suffering will be ended. You'll have a new body and you'll live a new life in the presence of the Lord forever in the new heavens, walking the new earth. But while you're on this path, I want to go back to Romans 8.1 for this final statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's going to be a life that's difficult, but you can know that God doesn't condemn you for any of that sin you're struggling with. Because Christ took the penalty, as earlier I think Bobby was describing, that there's no more wrath. God is not your judge. He's going to judge the world one day, but he's not going to judge you if you're a believer in Christ. There's no condemnation, only forgiveness, only love, only mercy, forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Father... I pray that these people are encouraged, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that they would just revel in the fact that they have a father that is so loving and a son who intercedes now that he has become our high priest in heaven. He'll give grace and mercy in our time of need. And thank you for the spirit who is really doing that sanctifying work in our lives. I pray now that as we go towards the table to remember what Christ did for us. I pray that we would be reminded of how significant and how precious the death of Christ on the cross for us is. And we pray, Lord, that you'll cause us to worship. In his name we pray, amen.